Good morning. We are so glad you're joining us today. And God is at work in our midst. I don't mean just like um, in your life. I mean in this place, God is moving. And I believe if you have not already encountered him somewhat this morning, his spirit has something for you during the service. Whether you are here with us in the room, whether you're joining us on live stream or later on in the week, God has something for you. And um, God's been moving in the orchard many different levels and many different ways. And I want to thank um, those of you who are orchard regulars for adjusting last week for Easter for our guests. We had over a thousand people join us physically here in the building over the week. Yeah. And, but, but that's not the thing we clap at. We clap at the fact that during that, there were people who made decisions to follow Jesus with their life for the first time, to re-engage in faith, to realize that they are forgiven, they can come home. We had people talk about getting baptized. God was at work. And so that's, that's what we were applauding right there is that God is moving. Yeah. That's what we want, more people following Jesus. And we say something here all the time, and I'm going to say it again. Here at the Orchard, we keep the main thing, the main thing. And that's Jesus. Above every church politic, above every cultural politics, above national politics, among the things that divide our nation or divide people in rooms like this, we have unity under Jesus because he is who he says he is. And we can put those things secondary compared to him. It is Jesus, the main thing. We also say this, our vision is love God and love people. And it seems like such a simple thing. It goes on a t-shirt, but, it, but, but, but trying to live that simple thing is, a diff, is different. In fact, Jesus said the entire Bible is summed up in that, love God and love people. That we are called to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then to love other people as ourselves. Love people, no asterisks, no asterisks. Now that doesn't mean you have to agree with all people. That doesn't mean you have to endorse all people's lifestyles or behavior. It doesn't mean you have to affirm the things they believe. What it does mean is even if you disagree with everything someone stands for and how they behave, we are without excuse when it comes to loving them. Now that's hard, but that's what God calls us to. Love God, love people, even when they are so different than anything we or you would be like. But that's what Jesus showed us. We are an imperfect church trying to follow a perfect God, to do our best more and more to love God and love people in this region. If you're just joining us after Easter, I want to let you know that we are in the middle of a series on the book of Exodus, which is way back on this side of the Bible. Jesus is about right here, and we're way back here, okay? In fact, the Bible is divided into Old Testament and New Testament. Now, Testament, they could have said covenant, Old Covenant and New Covenant, and covenant just means promise, which means there's an old promise, and that means that there's a new promise, The old promise, Jesus came, he lived, and he died, and he resurrected and fulfilled the old promise. And so now we, on the other side of the cross, we live and we stand on these new promises of the New Testament. So why, then, you ask? That's great. Why are we reading this ancient book about an ancient people? Because we're reading about the same God. That the same God who moved back then wants to move in your life now. We find God's nature in these places We find, and and here's something I love to to find in in the Old Testament. There are places where we find Jesus in the Old Testament. Not walking around like he did in the New Testament, but we find mention of him, foreshadowing of him, and ways that we see him appear in the text, and today is one of those. Today's story is probably the most well-known story in the Old Testament, if not the Bible, thanks to Charlton Heston. Today's, today's passage of scripture is one of, it, I mean, if you've seen a cartoon or a movie or a painting of it, it's amazing. 
And today, what I want us to do is look at this Red Sea, the splitting of the Red Sea. And, not, and listen, if we're familiar with the story, the problem is we kind of, we get it, but there is more at work here. And there's some things that God wants to reveal to you that apply directly to your life thousands and thousands of years after ancient people walked on dry ground through the middle of the sea. It has something for you here today now. And so with that, quick catch up on where we've been. The people of God were in slavery for 400 years under Egypt and Pharaoh, but God is setting them free. And last week was Passover when we looked at the final plague where God struck the firstborns of Pharaoh. And in and, and Pharaoh, after all these plagues, all the gods and goddesses that they worshiped, the idols had been defeated by Moses as God, Yahweh, the God of the universe. And that very night, after the final plague, here's what Pharaoh says. Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron during the night. Get out, he ordered. Leave my people and take the rest of the Israelites with you. Go and worship the Lord as you've requested. Take your flocks, your herds, as you said, and be gone we have discovered over the past weeks how, how all those plagues weren't just random, how God was one by one defeating who the Egyptians thought their gods and their goddesses were. And then finally, Pharaoh, who was God king himself, could no longer stand. He was no match for the God of the universe, Yahweh. So skipping down to 37, so that night the people of Israel left Ramses and started for Sukkoth. There were about 600,000 men, plus all the women and children. It goes on to say they take their herds and their livestock, and even a group of other people that joined with them. So we can imagine well over a million people, over a million people in the middle of the night packing up. They've already packed up. They were ready to go. Over a million people leaving. Now God had told them in the previous chapters to be ready, to prepare for this moment. So they gather what they have or what they want and they leave Egypt and they leave slavery behind them. Now, that is the end of the first movement of Exodus, the ending of slavery. And we're gonna move into the second movement of Exodus, which is the testing of the people to find their trust in God. Now, when we hear the word test, we think about the school days when you sit down and you have a test and you pass or fail. That is not the kind of test this next movement is going to have. They're going to face challenge after challenge and they're going to, have to, they're going to be tested to whether they will trust in God in the challenge or they were, whether they will once again trust in their old gods or their own selves. So the next movement of, of Exodus, we're going to see one, at, one after another after another Challenges, circumstances, and opportunities for the people to place their trust in God, the God who freed them. Now, we know that the, uh, the, in, from the earlier, in the, later in the Bible that the, the people of God, they have been worshiping the Egyptian gods and goddesses for hundreds of years. And they've been relying on Osiris and, and, and all those gods and goddesses. They're, they're now getting acquainted with this new God, the God of their ancestors of Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob, as Moses is telling them more and more about this. They have seen his power on display. They saw it happen. He freed them from Pharaoh. But it doesn't mean they trust him the way they need to, as we find out just on the first part of their journey. The first thing God does to, to begin to, to test them and give them a new paradigm of trust is he gives them a new way to engage with the God that they worship. Instead of an idol and doing these other little things and, and hoping and rituals, what he does is this in Exodus 13, 20. The, the Israelites left Sukkoth and camped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness and the Lord went ahead of them. He guided them during the day with a pillar of cloud and he provided a light at night with a pillar of fire. This allowed them to travel by day or by night. And the Lord did not remove the pillar of cloud or pillar of fire from its place in front of the people. 
Before this, they had been forced to do the bidding of their slave masters. They did not make any decisions on their own. They didn't have freedom to choose whether to follow or not. They were under the whip, under the thumb of Pharaoh. They were told when to get up, what to do, where to go, when they could stop. But God is showing them this new paradigm. He's going to lead them, and they get to choose whether they follow him or not. And he is present right there in front of them, visibly present, trusting, saying, please trust me. It's a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. Can you imagine this? Like we've, we've seen the pictures, maybe you've seen the movies, but put yourself in it and imagine a pillar of fire. Imagine that nightlight at night, you know? And not just that there's a pillar of fire there um, outside the, our million-person camp out in the middle of the wilderness, but that it is a tangible reminder that God's presence is with us. And we don't move camp. We don't pack up and leave unless God's presence moves. And when he moves, we get to choose whether we follow or not. But imagine the wonder. Here's what we have to get. The the Israelites, they're living in the, the joy of new freedom from slavery. But they're living in the wonder of seeing this pillar of cloud and fire guide them. The, the, the joy and the wonder of the new life they now have on the other side of slavery. Now, back in Egypt, it is not going so well. Pharaoh tells Moses that the people can go, and they go with a swiftness. They are ready. They are gone. And you can imagine Pharaoh waking up the next morning after a painful, terrible night. He wakes up the next morning and no one brings him his coffee. No one brings him his daily papyrus. Like, and not only that, all work in the kingdom had stopped. All the projects, all the building, all the slave labor was gone. In rich households all across Egypt, people were waking up and for the first time having to learn to work the Mr. Coffee Maker. Like it's never been, life was immediately different for them. Noticeably, tangibly different now that their slave labor, their servants, their maids, their everything had gone. And so Pharaoh, with his heart hardened, changes his mind. Verse 5, 14, when the word reached the king of Egypt that the Israelites had fled, that they had gone so quickly, Pharaoh and his officials, they changed their mind. What have we done? Letting all those Israelite slaves get away, and they asked. So Pharaoh harnessed his chariot. Then he called upon his troops. He got 600 of Egypt's best chariots, their top-of-the-line technology, along with all their regular chariots in Egypt, each with its commander. Pharaoh wants his workforce back. Yes, there was pain in the plague, but the pain of looking at the future without uh, the, the workforce and all that had kept their country, their nation moving, he wants it back. He gets his 600 of his best chariots and thousands of other chariots. Now, that might not seem like much to us, but the Hebrews, they aren't warriors. They're slaves. And a chariot in that day is a tank. You can imagine thousands of chariots uh, with seasoned Egyptian warriors. The who is who of the warriors. They would cut through fleeing slave labor like a hot sword through butter. Straight through. And so verse 9 tells us it wasn't just the chariots. The Egyptians chased after God's people with all the forces in Pharaoh's army. All his horses and chariots, his charioteers and his troops. The Egyptians caught up with Israel the people of Israel, as they were camped outside the shore near, near Pahahiroth. Now, this is where we get the famous scene. Pharaoh and the chariots on one side. Charlton, I mean Moses and the people of Israel on the other side. And then, uh, then we have the Red Sea trapping them. There's no way to go. Pharaoh bearing down on them. Remember, the people of Israel, they're, they're maids. They're laborers, miners, woodsmiths, servants. 
And they're up against one of the most powerful armies on the planet at this time. They have learned, they have learned in the brief time before this that their God Yahweh was much more powerful than the gods and goddesses of Egypt, the Nile God and the, the sun God and the, the, the air God and the, the earth God. But this is a very tangible threat. This is different. This is a threat they can see with their eyes. This isn't some like war of the gods. This is a threat that is coming down upon them and they know if they fight, they die. If they flee, they die. If they freeze, they die. So how do these people who God has shown his power to them over the previous plagues and months, how do they respond? They know how powerful Yahweh has been. Surely they go, okay, God, what's next? Well, let's see how they respond. Verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and panicked. When they saw Egyptians overtaking them, they cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Like we were, oh, we were so happy there. Why did you make us leave slavery? Didn't we tell you this would happen, Moses? We told you. We left Egypt. We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves in e to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. Man, that last sentence. Better to be a slave for generations. Have our children raised as slaves. Throw our, our, child, our, our male children in the Nile than to be a corpse in the wilderness. Can you see here their spirit has been broken through their hundreds of years of slavery. Their identity, who they are, is, is gone. They view themselves as slaves. We might as well go back. We know, we've had these seasons. We get comfortable with the pain we get used to. And when God moves us out of a, a, a season into something new and we face new pain or, or new circumstance or new crisis, well, that other pain was a lot easier. At least I knew what to do with that one. But you notice there's, there's no talk of God saving them. Not once did they say, okay, Yahweh, now what? Moses, now that mighty staff you had that, 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 that turned into a snake that did all those those mighty things in Egypt, like, does it turn into a sword? Like a laser? Like, what are you going to do? Something. It's just pure panic. And their mind goes to the worst case scenario. They're facing a circumstance bigger than themselves, an enemy bigger than themselves, a tangible enemy bearing down on them, a greater threat than they could ever defend. They are out of control of the results here. Now, we've been in this place. Many of you are in this place right now. You have moments like this where a diagnosis bigger than you can imagine threatens yourself or a loved one. A crisis that threatens you and those you love the most. Circumstances beyond your control falling apart, whether it be relational, whether it be financial and business, whether it be your children, your parents, whatever it is, we have faced these situations where there is a tangible crisis or circumstance that is terrifying to us, that is larger than that we can control. We have faced these moments, and many of you in your life right now are facing the very moment that these ancient people are facing. The Hebrews, they're trapped between the sea and an army, and they see no, they see no way to escape. There is no way out that they can create. They, they fight, flight, or flee, or freeze, and they just choose panic. I want us to pause here and I want us to, before we read the next verse, I want, us, I want you to get, prepare yourself to take this in because whatever you're facing in your life, I want you to take these words into that place. Because Moses told the people, don't be afraid. And that's always what you say to someone who's afraid, right? 
Don't be afraid. It's like when my wife and I are, you know, disagreeing, I say, calm down. It goes over really well. <laughs> Love you. Don't be, most, they're panicking. There's an arm, a credible, tangible threat of death coming down to them. We can't go this way. We can't go anywhere. And Moses says, don't be afraid. Okay. He keeps going. Just stand still and watch the Lord Yahweh save you today. The Egyptians that you see right there bearing down on us, they will never be seen again. They will disappear from history. Don't be afraid. What kind of advice is that? Don't worry. Why? Because you're going to watch and see the Lord save you. Now, something I love about this part, that last part, the word here for save, watch and see the Lord save you. Watch and see Yahweh save you. The word save here is a Hebrew word, and the word is Yeshua. And if you know any Hebrew, Yeshua is the Hebrew name for Jesus. That is his name in Hebrew. So let's just read this a little differently. It says, Do not fear, stand still, and watch the Yeshua of Yahweh. That will be your salvation. This next verse is one worth writing down. It's one that I have, I have wept over. It's one I have posted around my house. It's one I put at different seasons. I have, this verse is, on, is in journals. This, this verse is in my heart. Moses says this, The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. That is against every human thing that we want to deal with. Being still is the last thing we want to do. The word here for be still is a Hebrew word that also means to remain silent or to be at peace. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be calm, be at peace. The Lord will fight for you. You rest in peace. You don't have to yell. You don't have to panic. You don't have to go post about it online. You don't have to go gossip about it. You don't have to sit there and imagine bad outcomes. You don't have to worry. You need only to be still and the Lord will fight for you. You don't need to clench your fists. You don't need to get ready to fight. You don't need to get ready to flee. You don't need to freeze. You don't need to medicate. You don't need to numb out. You don't need to check out. You don't need to panic. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to rest in his peace. So what do you do when faced with a situation that is larger than yourself, that you cannot control the outcome? You can't control the outcome, and you, you can't dictate how it goes by your own power. What do you do? You see, there are battles that we face that only God can fight for us. And in those battles, no amount of panic, no amount of worry, and no amount of white-knuckled control over your life will help at all. In fact, those things will only make a bad situation so much worse. Because you will exhaust yourself. But that's what we do as humans. When crisis and circumstances happen, we worry, we panic, we have anxiety, we try to control. That's why God, knowing us, says, be still. Be still. Remain in my peace. Listen to this promise in the New, new Covenant, the New Testament, Philippians 4, 6-7. It starts with the same words back there for these ancient people. Do not worry. Same words. Do not worry about anything. But instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and, and thank Him for what He's done. Be grateful. Then you will what? Experience God's peace. 
which exceeds anything we can understand, his peace will guard our hearts and minds as you live in Jesus. Don't worry about anything. How is that possible? Well, first of all, let me say this. You must see, you must begin to see that worry is absolutely, fundamentally outside of God's desire for how you live your life. You must begin to move worry from, oh, I'm a worrier. Oh, that's just who I am. That's just how I am. You must move worry out of the, it's okay, to the, it is fundamentally outside of what God wants you to do with your life. You must put worry in its correct place. It is terrible. It's not bad. It's terrible. If circumstances you're facing aren't bad enough, worry is self-inflicted torment in the midst of it. Why? Here's why. God's presence is available to you in the present moment, in the now. God's peace is available to you in the present moment, in the now. And worry is leaving the now to a future undetermined moment where God's peace and his presence do not live and will not hold you. You're in an imaginary future of what if and what could be that doesn't exist. And God's peace isn't out there to hold you because it's in the now, it's in the present. Be still, be here, be present. Do not worry, be still, be present. Don't worry about anything, but instead pray about everything. Why? Here's why. Listen to this, listen to this. Worry is a conversation that you have with yourself about things you cannot change. Prayer is a conversation you have with God about things he can't change. Let me say that one more time. Worry is an ongoing internal conversation you have with yourself about things you cannot change, but prayer is a conversation you have with God that, about things he can change. Worry, in fact, actually reveals more about our faith and trust in him than we are we like to admit. This is very, this is hard. This is, this, is, this is very private and very hard, but I want you to, to listen to this, take it in, and reflect this mirror back on your faith and see what you think. Worry reveals how we feel about God's true love for us and his ability and willingness to help us. Francis Chan puts it this way. Our worry implies that we don't tr quite trust that God is big enough or powerful enough, or loving enough to take care of what is happening in our lives. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Now, I have to say this. This isn't some sweet, platitude, cheesy Christian bumper sticker, let go and let God. Choosing not to worry in the face of crisis, real crisis, there's nothing cheesy about that. That is where faith and trust and the metal is formed. That is as real as it gets, isn't it? It's not letting go. It's grabbing on to him. It's, it's holding your faith. It's holding the line in your thoughts not to move forward and worry. It's holding on to his promises. It's resting. It's remembering that you are actively placing your trust and your hope and your entire life in his hands. And what's the result? It says, then you will experience God's peace experience it. You will feel it. 
You will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard our hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. This, this past week, I have been on the phone more or visiting more or at the hospital more or talking to more people in crisis that are close to me, that I love. They're facing legitimate life-changing crises, crises than in any other time that I've done this. which is, is very difficult for, there, there's some people, and you're some of them, you're going through your crisis as well. But let me tell you what I've been hearing on the phone and in these conversations, or I've sat with people. I've watched and I've listened to them, and, 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 and they've, they've faced an army of fear bearing down upon them. And in, in many of these conversations, I'm hearing some sort of these sentences that I've taken note of. God is giving me the strength that I need. Daniel, God, God is giving me peace in this. One of my friends, Renee, she was about to undergo major open heart surgery. I'm talking to her on the phone. In the background, I hear beeps. I hear, like, I hear the whole bustle of people, and they're asking questions. And she, uh, okay, okay, oh, yeah, we're trying to get, I just want to pray over her one last time. And, and, and it's all going on around her. And, and she says, Daniel, I am totally at peace. God has me. It's easy to say to your pastor, she's about to go into surgery. She's not just making this up to make me feel good. Listen, I was shocked at the steadiness in her voice. I was shocked at the resolve in what she said. It was no small thing. Her life hung in the balance. But I could hear, I could hear in her voice the faith. There was a deep strength and peace within Renee. I'll say this. Here's how far I'll go with it. She was communicating a level of peace and her voice and her calm was a level of peace that didn't match the room she was in. The level of peace and calm that she was living from, it didn't make sense under the circumstances. Do you you get that? It didn't make sense under the circumstances. But what did the verse promise us? It says this, then you will experience tangibly experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. It didn't make sense. And maybe you have experienced this peace at times. I have. When it seems that all peace should be gone, God, you're holding me. Worry is a human temptation. We deal with it. We battle it. We've made it okay. We need to move it out of the okay and into something we need to to avoid at all costs. Listen, when we refuse to worry and instead rest in God's peace, as he said, his peace will guard your heart and mind. Imagine God guarding your emotions. Imagine God guarding your thoughts. You experience peace and God places his guard upon you to make sure you keep it. That's a peace that the world can't touch. The world's peace happens. The world is at peace when circumstances are peaceful. But the people of God have a resource that though hell break loose around us, heaven can hold us firm within. That peace is only available from God, the God of peace. Listen, I want to say this. Resting in God's peace, abiding in God's peace, being still in these moments, it will not change your external circumstances. I have to be honest with you. God promises it will transform our, form our internal experiences while you're in them. But when you're in a storm, when you're going through a crisis, when you're in a dark season, you may not be able to change the circumstances. You probably can't change the circumstances. You can't change the diagnosis or the relationship. There's things you just can't change. But you don't have to panic through it. If you're going through a difficult, dark, terrifying season, 
the only thing you can control is how you respond internally. No amount of white knuckle control, no amount of worry, no amount of anxiety, no amount of panic can help change your circumstance. But you can affect how you respond internally. You don't get to choose your crisis, but you do get to choose your experience in the crisis. Will you be still and fight and remain in God's peace and trust him with the result? Or will we worry outside of God's peace and let the crisis ravage our emotions and torment our minds in an already difficult situation? We don't get to choose the crisis, but we can choose our experience within it. God tells Moses, the Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. And what happens next? Listen to this. The angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. That pillar that was guiding them moved from in front of them to behind them to protect them from Pharaoh's army. Now, anywhere in the Bible where it says, we've talked about this in the past, that it says the angel of Lord, capital L-O-R-D, or here the angel of God, it's often talking about something called a theophany. A theophany is where the divine God shows up in a tangible, visible way. We, we saw them in Genesis. We see them throughout the Old Testament. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're thrown into a furnace. There's three of them. They look in and see four. Theophany, Jesus, they're with them. I believe theophanies are oftentimes where Jesus is seen in the story, the Old Testament. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, with those eyes, you begin to see where Jesus is at work in many different places. And what was that verse we talked about earlier? Do not fear, be still, and watch the Yeshua of Yahweh. You watch Yeshua of Yahweh. And the pillar moves. Here we have the angel of God, the angel of God. I believe Jesus himself moved from in front of them to behind, behind them to protect them where they're most vulnerable. To protect them from where the enemy is charging, where they're weak. And how often in our lives, do I, I wonder, is Jesus moving between us and catastrophe in ways we don't see? Or moving in our lives to weak places and vulnerable spots that, that we're being attacked? One more little nugget in this text, and I almost left this out, but, but it just, I had to put it in here because um, it's so relevant because oftentimes we get in a circumstance and we say, how could you let this happen or, or, or any of those things? But, but do you remember when God's people, when they first saw the army bearing down on them, how did they respond? Complete panic, right? We wish we were slaves again. We, we, we could be buried back there instead of buried. Like, they just panic. You let us out here to die, that's what they said. You let us out here to die. But did you know earlier in the text, God says why he led them to that place? He tells exactly why. In Exodus 13, 17, God tells Moses, I'm going to lead them this Red Sea route, not this shorter route that's easier. So there's two places. And God says specifically, I'm reading, I'm leading them to the Red Sea, not the shorter route. I'm purposefully, obviously, I'm, I'm purposely taking them to the, the unobvious way. Why? God tells Moses this. Because the short route, they will encounter Philistines. And he says, I know my people. They aren't yet ready for that challenge. <laughs> their faith and their trust and their maturity could not handle that path and that step that way that test. 
So God purposely led them to the Red Sea to the test of, hey, just be still and watch me move. You'll have to fight someday, but first, I want you to learn to be still and trust me. God knew they weren't ready for the other test. So while the people are panicking, God knew what he was preparing them for. God had already sheltered their lives from a different path that would have absolutely broken them. And I wonder this, how often in our lives do we face circumstances and wonder, how could this happen? Why is this happening? Not knowing other paths that God has let us avoid to end up there. And someday in heaven, we'll only know this then, when we're perfected and we can see clearly, we'll see the many life challenges and crisis and all these kinds of things that God had our path go a different way because we could not handle that. But he's going to be with us through this one and he'll show his glory and then we'll pass the test of trust. Like the people of this story, we'll also see where Jesus moved in our life into a place to guard us where we're most vulnerable. Back to our text, he's moved between the people and the army, but the Red Sea is still there. The army's there, Jesus and God in between right here, but the, the Red Sea is still there. They're trapped with no way out. No human way to get out of there. You can worry, you, you can panic, you can get out there and start swimming, but a million people can't, get, they're trapped. Now, this is where it happens, the moment, the movie moment right? The wind, the beard, and the, ah, and the, the, yes, this is where the power of God makes a way where there is no way humanly possible. Exodus 14, 21, God tells Moses to stretch out his hand over the sea, and then the waters divided. The Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, not muddy ground. He dried it for them with a wall of water on the right and left side. He opened a divine way in the crisis through it where there's no other way humanly possible. And there are times like here in the Red Sea where God makes a way. We have seen more healings. We have seen more God moving in our past weeks than we have seen in a while. There's, there are times where God makes a way where we cannot make a way. We've seen miraculous changes of heart. We, we've seen people who are far from Jesus who throughout their life have never wanted anything to do with them in the past seven days say, I want to follow Jesus as my Savior. That is a moving of the Red Sea. That is a mighty miracle anytime somebody chooses life in Jesus. We have seen miraculous resource pour, pour into the lives of those who are needy. We have seen freedom for some of those who are in bondage. We have seen God making a way where there is no human way. And there are times where God does this, where he does these things by his miraculous power. But I wouldn't be a good preacher if, I just stop, if I'd stop there because there are times when he doesn't as well. We prayed for Stacy to be healed and she was miraculously, overwhelmingly. We prayed for Renee to be healed and when, even when there was complications in her surgery and it, all things became clear. We, we, but, but there are other dear friends of mine who I have prayed to be healed of a diagnosis and they were not healed here on this earth. They were healed in heaven. You see, sometimes God makes a way miraculously here on earth, and sometimes he makes a way miraculously after in heaven. Here's all I want you to know, is we do not control the result. But we must engage faithfully in the process, no matter what. Anytime someone is sick, I pray in faith and ask the God of, of, of all power to move now in their life and make a way and there are many times he does. He would split a Red Sea in their life and in their health. And, and today I know this. There are some of you right now who are up against a Red Sea where there is no way through. Some of you find yourself trapped with no way out that you can, you, you can find. And you have worried. You've panicked. 
You've been angry. You have tried to control. You, but there's nothing you can do to affect the outcome of these things. And, and I hope you hear me today that, that God might be calling you to stop the control, to stop the worry. We have to, we have to draw the line there, at least. To be still and find a way to rest in his peace and pray in faith that he can make a way where we can't see one. So my question is today, where do you need God to show up for you? Last, last service we had some prayer for some people and, and I, I've heard this over the past weeks that, that some of you have really big prayers that you feel are, are too big to come down and get prayer for. There's no prayer too big. Some of you feel like you have prayers that are too, uh, too shameful. And I want to let you know that there is no shame and, and coming down for prayer. There's no judgment on our part. And I know thus other people have said, I feel like my prayers are too small to come down front or up back and get, uh, get, get prayed for. And there's no, there's no prayer too small. As we go into this next part, if you have a prayer you would like uh, us to pray over with you, I'm gonna have myself, uh, my wife, my dad, some of the elders in the back, some people over here, we would love to pray for you on those places where you feel you need God to come through for you. For others of you, perhaps today you realize that, that no matter how big or little the circumstance, you have been allowing worry to run your life. You have been allowing worry to run rampant in your heart and mind. And you have not experienced peace. You have experienced terror. Today, I want what you take with you is that be still verse and that Philippians 4, 6, and 7. You need to write that down, print that out. You need to memorize that. You need to put it in your pocket. You need to have that in front of you at all times because worry happens at all times and you must be ready to fight and be vigilant. We can't let worry win the day. The band is going to play while you take communion and they're going to start a song called The Same God. It's a song I've been begging Micah to play for me. I love it so much. And I, here's the rule we usually have. We never end on a new song because we want you guys to really be able to sing. But this is a new song for some of you. I would ask that you would engage your whole heart because this song declares the same God who moved there for those ancient people and made a way is the same God who moves and makes a way today. And the same God who answered prayer back then answers prayer now. He is the same God. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray as we go into communion and into worship, Father, there are many of us in this place who are facing crisis and we have to have you, we need you to move in our life or the life of a loved one. Please, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, I ask that you would move mightily. Lord, I pray that also you would give us the, col the, the, the courage and boldness to, to request prayer that we can lay hands and pray on each other. Father, I pray for those in this room who, who find their life being run on the fuel of worry, that, Father, we would draw a line and we would begin to live in your peace. I pray you bless us. I pray that we bless you and worship you in this next song. Amen.